So as I mentioned a few moments ago, we've been working our way consecutively through the book of Ephesians. And we're coming to the end of the book now, and we're in a section where Paul, the author, is writing to the church in Ephesus about what it looks like to make the best use of the time, to walk, or that is a a way of saying to live, wisely, as we saw in Ephesians 5 and verse 15. What does it look like to live wisely? What does it look like to make the best use of the time? He tells them they need to be filled with the Spirit, and then goes on to describe what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit. And we have addressed uh, that section a couple weeks ago, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, etc., etc. And one of the things he says is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as I mentioned when I preached on that particular section, some people argue that that means that there's, there's no hierarchical relationships whatsoever that are instituted by God. Because if, if there are any authority dynamics whatsoever, then we're not submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you could just take that uh, all the way to um, use a reductio ad absurdum argument and, and reduce that to absurdity to say that unless we're prepared to say that uh, we believe in uh, anarchy instead of government, that we believe that teachers in schools are useless and redundant and that everybody should just educate themselves, unless we're prepared to say that children uh, should, should have as much authority in the home as parents, etc., etc., which would manifestly unravel all the building blocks of society. Uh, we need to understand that what he's doing in verse 21 of chapter 5 is not making an absolute prohibition of any authority dynamic whatsoever, uh, but, he, but he is talking about that disposition of Christians uh, to consider one another's interests as well as their own and to be willing to submit in appropriate relationships where there is a divinely ordained authority dynamic. And Paul goes on to enumerate three. And this is the section that we're in. First, he talks about wives and husbands, which we addressed a couple of weeks ago. And then in this section that we're looking at today, he's talking about children and parents. So what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, for wives, it looks like submitting to their husbands. For children, it looks like submitting to their parents. This is the context within which Paul gives this statement. What does it look like for a child to walk wisely, to make the best use of the time, to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like for a child to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? It looks like him or her being obedient to their parents. This is one of the ways that spirit-filled, wise children will live. And so this is the context of the passage that we're looking at today. Obviously, Paul addresses both children and fathers in this passage. Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. We'll look at the content in greater detail in a moment, but two things are important to note right off the bat. Having observed simply that Paul addresses both children and fathers in this passage. First, Paul is assuming that children will be present with the grown-ups in the instructive portion of the worship service, and that his teaching is relevant to them. In other words, Paul demonstrates here that children, along with grown-ups, are the intended recipients of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul assumes here in Ephesians chapter 6 that they have been listening all along as the letter to the Ephesians was read in the Ephesian church. And so he addresses them directly here. He doesn't say, parents, go into another room, find your children and bring them here. I have something to say to them. He assumes that they're already listening. In other words, that they've been listening all the way from chapter 1 through to chapter 5. So Paul assumes that they're there, and Paul assumes that, they are, that the letter is relevant to them. So, the assumption here, pardon me, the assumption here is that children, along with grown-ups, are the intended recipients of this letter. Right? And so, if this is Paul's assumption that children should be present and that children 
that they, the children should be present for the instructive portion of the worship service and that the instructive portion of the worship service is relevant to children, if that's Paul's assumption, ought that not also to be our assumption? Right. Of course, textually, we can only make the case that Paul's assuming that those who are of sufficient age to understand are present. Right. He's not saying babies, come on, sleep through the night so your parents can get some rest. He's not giving instructions like that. He's giving instructions that are intended to be understood and, and responded to by children who are of an age appropriate to understand. So obviously there's some gray area there in terms of at what age should children start to be in the worship service. I don't think we could say in this section that it's mandated that babies are in, newborn babies have to be here. But I think there is an assumption here that children should be present and that the gathered worship of God's people is relevant to them as well as to the grown-ups. So that's a little bit of a side note, a secondary thing, but it's worth drawing out as we look at this section. The second thing that's important to note right off the bat, seeing that Paul addresses both children and fathers, is this. Since Paul uses a different word for fathers in verse 4 than he does for parents in verse 1, we shouldn't assume that the directions in verse 4 are equally applicable to both mothers and fathers. Otherwise, wouldn't we have just said, parents, do not provoke your children to anger? He's already used a, a different word for parents in chapter 6 and verse 1. He could just use that same word again, if that's all he meant. And so, though elsewhere in the Greek language, it's within the lexical range of the word fathers to refer to fathers and mothers. In this section, I think we need to understand it as a distinction because he addresses parents and then three verses later addresses fathers. So why then does Paul address fathers specifically? Perhaps as John Gill notes, because fathers are more apt to be severe as mothers to indulge it. Perhaps. That is a reality that sometimes fathers can be harsher in a home than mothers can be. But sometimes in a home, mothers can be harsher than a father can be. So I don't think we can say that that's for sure what he's driving at in this section. I think more to the point is what Harry Uprichard says in his commentary. In the final analysis, Scripture makes it plain that the rearing of children and youth is the father's responsibility first and foremost. He should take initiative in this and take his responsibility seriously as he shares with his wife the rearing of the family. So mothers are implicitly included in the command. This is how children are to be parented. But Paul is highlighting the father's primary responsibility in this respect, saying that the father needs to lead in the discipline and instruction in the Lord of their children, and that the father needs to ensure that in the way that they raise their children, the children are not provoked to anger. So I think what he's doing here is highlighting subtly that point that he makes more explicitly elsewhere that the father is the divinely ordained head of the home and as such bears a primary responsibility for the affairs of the home. So both of those are kind of secondary points but they're worth drawing out as we deal with this section. But having made those observations, let's deal with the content that is primarily in view now in this section of Scripture, beginning with the duties that are enjoined upon Paul's readers here. First, he speaks to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is very much connected to the next thing that he says in verse 2, which is honor your father and mother. He says obey, and he says honor. He says both of those things. But we're not to think that those are two different things. Basically, what obedience is, is it's an outworking of honor in the context of the relationship between parents and their children. Harry Up Richard, who I quoted a moment ago, a biblical commentator, makes a helpful observation here. He says that the point where the child must especially strive to show honor to the parents is that point where the will of the child and that of the parent conflict. In other words, what kind of honor is it when it's like, 
I will honor you as long as you don't cross me. Right, mom and dad, you're going to get honor from me, except when your will conflicts with mine. Right, what kind of honor is that? What Paul is doing here in connecting these this way is he's showing that what honor looks like in the context of a child and parent relationship is obedience. That a child has that honoring attitude towards the father and mother that leads him or her to obey, even when he doesn't feel like it or so on and so forth. That obedience is an outworking of that principle, uh, which is to honor your parents. That's what it looks like. We should note here by way of observation that there are a couple of uh, limiters here. I think implicitly, this is limited in the context of all of Scripture in the sense that nowhere in Scripture do we get the idea that adult children living separately in their own homes are to obey their father and mother. Honoring your father and mother is never rescinded. So we have to figure out, even if we're 55 and our parents are 85, we have to figure out how to honor them. But we don't all the way through our life have to obey them. So we say to our parents, I'm planning a trip. And they say, oh, no, you're not. Right? And you say, oh, mom. But we, don't, we don't have to obey in the same way all the way through our life, even though we do have to honor. So I think that that's... Paul's, Paul's not... He doesn't go through his letters and caveat everything he says. Well, this doesn't mean this and this doesn't mean this. But I think we do need to understand that as an implicit limiter of this. Secondly, there's an explicit limiter here in the text where he says, Obey your parents in the Lord. This is a limiting phrase as well as a motivation. We'll talk about the motivation in a few minutes. But it's important to notice that this is also a limiting clause. Children are not to obey their parents outside the Lord's will, but inside the Lord's will. This means that insofar as parents' commands are not contrary to the law of God, children must obey. It doesn't mean that children must obey only when the parents' commands are also prescribed by God, but even when the parents' commands simply do not run against the law of God, children must obey. This is the way that it's set up here. But when the parents' commands do run contrary to the law of God, when parents try to use their authority in a way that is abusive, or when parents try to get their children to sin or to join them or be complicit with them in a sin, children are not to obey. In the Lord, it is, is within the realm of the Lord's authority, the Lord's sovereignty, the Lord's injunction. So that's a limiting phrase here. So, as I said, Paul doesn't elaborate on every caveat and exemption, exemption here. He just states the principle with that summarized qualifier. So ordinarily and under most circumstances, especially in a household with godly parents, children are to obey. And children should feel the weight of that imperative. Children need to feel that responsibility before God, that they must obey their parents. This is an obvious duty that is enjoined upon children in this passage. And this includes not just biological father and mother, but this would include adoptive parents, step-parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and any who act in the stead of one's parents for whatever reason, due to combined family structures or due to the less-than-ideal accommodations that we somehow, sometimes have to make living in a fallen world where parents are unable or unwilling to be primary caregivers for their children. So in, in, in teaching this, again, Paul is drawing on the Ten Commandments, which as we saw earlier in the service, are not simply just specific imperatives that are to be observed woodenly, but they comprise whole categories of biblical law. So sinful anger falls within the category of the commandment not to murder. Likewise, honoring your parents comprises honoring those who are in appropriate authority over you, which would include in situations where parents are un, biological parents are unable or unwilling to care for their children, uh, whether by uh, death, 
accident, illness, injury, uh, incapacity, whether by even sinful neglect for whatever reason, sometimes we find that the primary caregivers of a child are not the biological parents. And so the injunction here for children is to obey those who are acting in the stead of parents for whatever reason. So that's the plain teaching of this passage here, that children are to obey their parents. It's interesting to note, before we move on here, as we mentioned the Ten Commandments, that as St. Clair Ferguson says so well, Paul refers to the commandment very naturally here in a way that implies the specific commandment and by implication the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments as a whole are still applicable to the gospel lifestyle. Paul's writing not to primarily a Jewish audience but to primarily a Gentile audience. And Paul's not writing to an old covenant audience, Paul's writing to a new covenant audience. But he just throws it out there like as the commandment says which implies that this specific commandment and by implication the Decalogue as a whole is still applicable to the gospel lifestyle. But that's, again, a secondary issue. So let's move on now to look at the duties of parents and especially fathers as enumerated in this next section. Paul says to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar letters. And in Colossians it says, lest they be discouraged. John Calvin says in his commentary on this verse that we should avoid unreasonable severity in child raising. This, he says, would excite hatred and would lead them to throw off the yoke altogether. It rouses them to obstinacy and destroys the natural affections. Listen to this. He says, kind and liberal treatment, on the other hand, has a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience. This is the sense of what Paul is saying here in this section, that we, we, we need to not be unreasonably severe with our children, but we ought to give them, as Calvin says, kind and liberal treatment. We shouldn't be excessively strict or excessively forceful. Speaking to excessive force... We talked a number of weeks ago about the difference between gentleness and harshness and described gentleness as using only as much force as is necessary. So Jesus is described as being gentle, but at times he speaks words that are very stern, very offensive, very confrontational, etc., etc., and yet he's described as being gentle. Everywhere in the scripture, harshness is denounced as being something not good. There's one place in the prophets where God is described as dealing harshly with his enemies, and yet that's even in the way it's used there, it's more of a metaphor than speaking about one of God's attributes or something as being harsh. And so everywhere in scripture harshness is seen as not a good thing, whereas gentleness is seen as being a good thing. And yet as I said, we see from Jesus example We see from Paul's example and other biblical writers that they're not afraid to use hard language. They're not afraid to be stern. They're not afraid to be confrontational, etc., etc. While at the same time, they enjoin us to be gentle. And so gentleness can't mean not using hard words. Gentleness can't mean not being confrontational, etc., etc. So rather, gentleness is using not more force than is necessary. And in that sense, we ought to be gentle with our children. Doesn't mean that we baby them. Doesn't mean that we never correct them. Doesn't mean that we never speak sternly to them, etc., etc. But we need to, as parents, not use more force than is necessary. Using more force than is necessary would be basically a biblical definition of harshness, which is everywhere criticized in Scripture. We ought not to be those who kill flies with sledgehammers in any area of life, not least parenting. We ought, to, we ought to learn to use the instrument appropriate to the task. And so as we come to parent our children, yes, we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that involves correction. But we need to endeavor to bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord 
in such a way that is not harsh, is not excessively forceful, is not unreasonably severe, so that we might not provoke them to anger and so that they might not become discouraged. It also, provoking, not provoking them to anger, lest they become discouraged, and dealing kindly and liberally with them, as Calvin says, also includes not being unreasonably strict. I'm going to say, lay out principally, principally that there are three things, three principles, or three categories of things that we do need to enforce with our children. One is God's laws. Children must obey God's laws. Secondly, we need to enforce polite habits. Thirdly, we need to enforce practical necessities. Let me unpack these things. But those are the three categories of things that we do need to enforce, contrasted with every whim of preference or uh, every, every whim or preference that we might have as parents. We don't need to enforce and we should not enforce every whim or preference that we might have as parents. But those three categories of things we do need to enforce. And let me, let's speak to each of them individually. Firstly, we, mu- we must enforce God's law in our home. Children are responsible to obey God. They should not get the vibe from living in our home that they do not need to enforce, or that they do not need to obey, rather, God's law. They should get the vibe from living in our home that God's law is important. That all human beings are bound by God's law. That all human beings are subject to and accountable to God's law. This is the impression that children should get growing up in our homes. We are stewards of our children. That God has a greater claim to ownership, as it were, of our children than we do. That who made these children? Well, we would say, well, we made them. No, well, really, really, no, you didn't. Right? You, you were a means, an instrument by which God made them. As Psalm 139 says, He knit them together in their mother's womb. Right? We need to understand that first and foremost, before, before they are your children, they are just generically children, which falls into a greater category, which is being human. And humans belong fundamentally to God before they belong to anyone else. And so we need to understand that we are stewards of our children and we are accountable to God for how we parent them for how we love our little neighbors that live in our house we are accountable so we need to enforce God's law for their sake and for our own sake because it's good for them to grow up understanding that they are subject to God's laws and because God will hold us accountable for the way that we've parented them in that respect secondly polite habits I don't know what else to call it I was trying to think of a phrase here but put it this way we also need to teach our children how to function in society right so if we just said well all we enforce in our home is God's laws really so your children eat with right off the floor just lap it up with their tongues like a dog you know and uh, pass wind whenever they feel like it and uh, don't use don't use polite terminology when they're addressing other people to whom they owe respect. You don't make you don't make them wear any. You have no standard of clothing beyond simply just being covered modestly. You don't insist that they wash their shirts at least with some frequency, etc., etc. I, I think you understand what I'm trying to say, so I don't want to belabor the point. But we need to be. We need to be specific in order to be clear in our minds about how we should be parenting. Right? So I'm not trying to make it I'm not trying to make this point as a joke, but just to give good practical help is that in addition to God's law, there are things which are not sinful in and of themselves, but which we do need to teach our children if they're going to be well-adjusted members of society that can live helpful and productive lives that glorify God. There are certain things that we need to teach them cultural norms, accepted behaviors, 
etc., etc., which belong to the society in which we live. So we should also insist on some of those things. And our children, we have a right to insist on some of those things as it's for their good, for their flourishing, for the glory of God. That's not outside the bounds of what we should be trying to do as parents. And our children need to obey us even in these regards. So it's no, it's no excuse for a child to say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says that I have to wash my shirt. Or there's nothing in the Bible that says, etc., etc. This is, a, this is an area where children must obey their parents uh, simply because their parents have commanded them. And we can exercise a, a legitimate authority in this respect. Then the third category of things is what I'll call practical necessity. So things which, again, might not be sinful in and of themselves to do or to not do, but we need to speak into these things as parents out of practical necessity. So here we're not talking about polite norms like addressing people as Mr. or Mrs. or Sir or something like that. We're not talking about things like uh, necessarily washing your clothes or something like that. We're talking about things that are actually practically necessary. That regardless of what society you lived in, you would still have to do. So the, the category I just gave you was for we need to teach them how to live in a specific society within which they live. But this category is broader. This is just practical necessity. Children just don't have good judgment. So is it wrong to eat a sugary bowl of cereal? In and of itself, no. But if you left kids to their own device, they would eat sugary bowls of cereal all the time. If you ask a kid, what do you want to have for dinner? They're not going to eat a healthy, balanced meal each meal that they come to. They may on occasion have a craving for something that's reasonably healthy, but more often than not, their cravings are going to lead them astray and your child will become malnourished. Right? So things like eat your broccoli. Right? Again, we have, we have a parental right here uh, to enforce things like this. We need to teach them and train them. Another example, bedtime. We have a four-year-old in our house who doesn't like going to bed. But we have to insist that it's time for you to go to bed because it's necessary that he get rest, but he doesn't have the judgment to guide himself in that matter. And so we need to insist on that. There are all kinds of other areas of practical necessity where you need to parent your kids and not let them be self-guided. I'm going to share a specific example from our home uh, by way of personal interest but also to illustrate the point you you guys may be interested to know that we have not one but two birds nests in our home <laughs> so the uh, some wood doves built a nest in one of our windows if you've been in our home it's, it's in the back laundry room by the back bathroom and then uh, some sparrows built a nest behind the curtain rod in our living room. All right? We, we're we're going to let that happen because they have little eggs in there and we're thinking that the educational value of seeing our, letting our kids be able to see this up close outweighs the inevitable mess and discomfort that is going to occur. So, so Max can climb right up the wrought iron and look in the sparrow's nest and, and the wood of nest is about this high so I can easily pick up our kids to see. So we decided to let that happen. Right? But there would come a point when I would say no more bird's nests. I don't know if I left it up to my children. I don't know that there would come a point where they would say no more bird's nests. You see, they don't have good judgment and they would let, they would let the house be overrun if it was up to them. You see, so there are things of practical necessity that we need to insist on as parents also. So God's law, but not just, we let everything go that's not sin. No, of course not. You, you also have to insist on things um, that are polite habits so that they can function well in this society in which they live. And you also need to insist on things that are practical necessities. My point in saying this is I'm trying to delineate that there, there are reasonable and rational ways to think about what we should insist on and what we should not insist on 
without just defaulting to our whims and preferences. And if you always just default to your whims and preferences, A, you will likely be inconsistent, which will frustrate your children, provoking them to anger and lead them to discouragement. And also, it's entirely possible that you will be uh, too lenient and do them a disservice and that they won't grow up to be productive and well-adjusted members of society whose lives glorify God. Um, or that they will become malnourished or whatever the case may be. Or you may be too harsh and your whims and your preferences will lead you to always be saying no when sometimes you should be saying yes. So when we think biblically about obedience and the authority dynamics of parents with children, we're not left to just only insist on God's law, nor are we left to just say, well, God's law and then whatever else I feel like. But we can think it through in a reasonable way and say, what is reasonable in addition to God's law to insist on? And then to insist on those things. Try to work out in the context of our families, what is a reasonable thing to insist on? What are reasonable things to insist on? What are reasonable ways to exercise authority? And then use that authority and exercise that authority as God has mandated here that you do and that um, for the sake of the children. So, so do not provoke your children to anger is, the, is actually only the first duty. The second duty here is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of could mean from the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction from the Lord. Or it could mean, bring them up in the discipline and instruction about the Lord. You could read the word of in both of those ways. I think biblically it's somewhat of a moot point because we're supposed to do both. We are to teach them the instruction that comes from the Lord. And we are to instruct them about the Lord. So we could look at that both ways. Of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again here, this emphasizes the point that we have a responsibility from God to pass on His teaching to them. That we are stewards. So we need to understand that and we need to take that responsibility seriously to steward our children in that way. To train them. To, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. One area that we need to do this is family worship. Let's break it down like this. God is worthy of our worship and our praise. Every person in the world owes God worship and praise. At least because He made them. And He's God. He's intrinsically worthy. And so they owe Him praise as God, as Creator. For those who have been redeemed by Christ Jesus, we have that additional responsibility to praise Him, to worship Him as not only our Creator, but also our Redeemer. But at a basic level, everyone owes God worship and praise simply as God. Which means our children owe God worship as God. Which means as parents, we have to train them to worship God as God. And so, when we think about it like that, we we come to understand that family worship is a good and necessary consequence. It's a necessity it's a necessary conclusion that we need to be worshiping God in our families. We need to be teaching our children to worship God. How often is God owed worship from our children? Every few days? Every couple of months? Again, we'd have to answer this daily. God is worthy daily of our worship and our praise. Obviously, we're constrained by other things that God has also commanded us to do in addition to consciously and explicitly worshiping Him so that we can't just sit there and worship 24-7. But, but we can't say that God isn't to be worshipped daily by our children or in our families then, right? We, it's a good and necessary consequence that we need to be leading our children in this respect. Right? So we need to be leading our families in worship, fathers especially, Again, the, 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 the responsibility is primarily with you. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You need to lead your families in this respect. You need to take initiative in this respect to lead them, uh, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
So we need to teach them that discipline and that instruction that comes from the Lord. We also need to teach them about the Lord. Bring them up in discipline and instruction about the Lord. And these are kind of commingled when we come down to brass tacks and think about what this looks like in our life. Again, we could think of family worship. We're teaching them about the Lord as we lead our families in worship, etc., etc. But here, the, the gist of it is teach them what God is like. Teach them what God is like. In teaching them about the Lord, we're to teach them what God is like. This is a great segue to the next section, the next thing we, that we need to talk about here, which is motivations. The duties are very clear here. Children are to obey their parents. Parents are to parent in a way that they're bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and not being unreasonably severe, leading their children to anger and discouragement. Why should we do this? What are the motivations that we see here in this passage? There are three harmonious motivations given for fathers. I say three harmonious because they can't really be put each one in a silo as if they're entirely separate things. But they work together. They're harmonious. But we can look at it from three different aspects. The first is this. As I just said, fathers are to teach their children about what God is like. Even in the way that we parent, we are to teach our children about what God is like as a father. Even in the manner, not only the substance or the content of our parenting, but even in the manner that we parent, we should be teaching our children about what God is like. Bringing them up in the discipline and instruction about the Lord. That God is like this, even in the manner that we parent. Think for a moment about the contrast between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Which many of you would be familiar with those concepts, but if you're not, the covenant of works is the relationship to which humanity stood toward God in the Garden of Eden before the fall, where God gave His law and threatened death, punishment, upon the slightest breach of the law. It was strict justice in the Garden. Even though there was grace, in the sense that God never had to come into relationship with humans at all anyway, the terms of the relationship between God and Adam before the fall were terms of strict justice. That if Adam breached the law, he would incur punishment. If he didn't breach the law, he would be rewarded. This was the terms. And so we call that the covenant of works. Strict justice. The covenant of grace is the new covenant. The new covenant wherein God deals with us graciously because Christ has satisfied strict justice on our behalf. So it's not that God has lowered His standards, that in the Garden of Eden He was holy and now He's less than holy and so deals leniently with us. That's not the way we need to think of it. But we need to think of it like this. In the covenant of works, we needed to answer strict justice in ourselves by our own law keeping. In the covenant of grace, Christ has answered the demands of strict justice on our behalf. And so God deals graciously with all who are in Christ. And so in the covenant of grace, God doesn't deal with me on the basis of strict justice, but He deals graciously with me. Because Christ has answered the demands of strict justice on my behalf. Think of that contrast. The contrast here... Is between those who are outside of the covenant of grace. In the broken covenant of works. Guilty and corrupt in Adam. Bearing in themselves strict justice for their sin and who are on their way to spending eternity apart from God in hell. We're contrasted with those in the covenant of grace to whom God has become a father in and through Christ Jesus. Jesus came and lived a life of perfect righteousness on our behalf and died on the cross on our behalf. And when we trust Him, we come into a new relationship with God whereby the demands of the law have been answered for us. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to Him. And God becomes our Father in and through Christ Jesus. 
Think of how differently it is to relate to God in the covenant of works, which is broken since Adam fell, versus relating to God from within the covenant of grace. Think about the difference between those two things. What we want to do as fathers is parent our kids as God parents us in the covenant of grace. Hebrews 12 speaks about discipline. Again, as I said earlier, it's not unreasonably severe to correct your children. It's not unreasonably severe to speak sternly to them or to use the rod of correction as Proverbs speaks about. It's not unreasonably severe. Discipline is part and parcel of healthy parenting. Hebrews 12 teaches us that God disciplines those He loves. And at the same time, Luke 15, for example, which our brother preached on a few weeks ago, tells us that God runs to the end of the driveway to clothe His errant children in the best robe. He wraps that robe around them and slaughters the fattened calf, kisses him. We discipline our children and we love our children. And there's, that, there's a felt love. So we run to them with an embrace and with discipline. God sees our sin still in the covenant of grace. And He's concerned that we make progress. He's concerned to make us holy. But He doesn't deal with us by strict justice, always coming down hard on us for every infraction and the slightest infraction in such a way that beats us down and discourages us. But He's patient with us. He deals kindly with us. He's long-suffering with us. He's so often gentle with us. How many times have you seen your sin before God has brought you right down into the dust? Sometimes God will bring us right down into the dust and bring us so low, grind us, as it were, with mortar and pestle until we feel our neediness and our helplessness and until we see our sin. Sometimes He does that. But so often, God deals more gently with us and brings us to see our sin before we get that long. Just, just deals with us with a gentle word from a friend. Just deals with us with that gentle prompting of the Spirit in our hearts. Just deals with us as we read the Scripture, perhaps to ourselves in the morning, or, or something that comes on the radio or a lyric to a song, and we realize, I've been errant, and I need to repent. God deals often so gently with us, even as He corrects us. We also need to mix that sternness with that gentleness, uh, or, or with that, that tenderness in good measure. And again, I can't speak specifically to that because different situations will be different, but you need to work that out in the context of your home. But principally, we want to teach our children that when they think about God's uh, fatherhood, uh, sorry, our children, when they think about God's fatherhood, will inevitably think of it in relation to the fatherhood that we've modeled for them. And so, what we want to do is, as best as possible, model good fatherhood for them. As much as possible, we want to help them understand that what it feels like to be in the covenant of grace is what it feels like to be in our home, or vice versa. Something like that. This is what we should be aspiring to, where there's that discipline and that tenderness at the same time and in right measure and in right proportion. Where even when we're stern, we're not excessive. Where even when we're gentle, we're not lenient and overly permissive. But we want to be aiming at getting these things in the right measure so that we're imaging God to our children. This is, ought to be one of the motivations that we have in parenting our children. And we see that textually in bringing them up in the discipline and instruction about the Lord. Of the Lord, in that sense. That we're giving them a good portrait of what God is like as Father. Secondly, again, when we've already addressed this, so I won't belabor the point, but again, we're stewards. This, this motivation is, is latent here in this passage, that there's an injunction from God to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of Him. That, and so we have a responsibility to God to do this. I won't belabor that point because we've already talked about it at length. And then thirdly, 
common grace. Children turn out better as, as a principle when we follow these injunctions. Good parenting generally leads to better outcomes. And we see here in this passage, do not provoke your children to anger. Right? Don't raise angry, resentful young adults. That's here in this passage. So just thinking about it in terms of the common grace level, right? not only is there a spiritual motivation, but there's also that motivation of try to raise good, healthy, well-adjusted kids that are not angry and resentful. So parent like this. Three harmonious motivations given us to us here toward parents. Then there are three harmonious motivations given to children here in this passage as well. Children are to obey because of what God is like. We see that textually when it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The motivation here is, as unto Christ Jesus in the Lord. When it refers to Lord in this section, it's referring to Christ Jesus. Children, parent, obey your parents as unto Christ Jesus. Out of respect for or with reference to Christ Jesus. As I said earlier, that's a limiter in the sense of how far their obedience is to go, but it's also a motivation. With reference to Christ Jesus, obey your parents. Because of who God is, what He's done for you in Christ Jesus. Because of the relationship that you now stand to God because of Christ Jesus. That because God is your Father in and through Christ Jesus. Obey also your earthly fathers, which are to be a picture of that relationship. Again, there's the gospel motivation here for children. Obey your parents as unto the Lord with reference to Christ. Then secondly, children are to obey their parents because this is right. For this is right. There's just a basic motivation of this is the way the world is. Children are supposed to obey their parents in this world. It's the way God's wired it. And then, along those lines, this promise that we see here, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, we need to understand this principally. Again, it's it's obviously not a hard and fast rule because we've seen obedient children die at a young age. We've seen rebellious people grow to an old age. But what we see here again is this general principle that because this is just the way the world is, therefore it is right, and therefore generally when you honor your father and your mother, generally it goes well with you and you live long in the land. This is is a different sense than the sense that it's given in Deuteronomy because in Deuteronomy it's actually a covenant blessing given to the Old Covenant Israelites as they're about to enter Canaan. Just as God said that He would make their crops flourish and keep them free of disease, etc., etc., it seems that it was also an Old Covenant blessing that literally children that honored their parents would live long in the Old Covenant. Whereas we don't have that promise here, Paul appropriates the principle and applies it to New Covenant Gentiles. And I think he does it in that manner, saying... Generally, this is a principle. So again, there's that common grace motivation that generally it goes well with you and you live longer. You have a a more healthy and better life when you obey your parents. And then thirdly, children are to obey their parents because of God's law. Again, we see here in this passage from Paul's citation of one of the Ten Commandments, that law-keeping is harmonious with New Covenant living. That we are, we are free from the law in the sense that we are free from its condemnation. We're no longer subject to the threats, the punishments, the penalties of the law when we're in Christ Jesus. It's no longer uh, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's no longer the situation for us. That because Christ has answered the demands of strict justice on our behalf, the law has nothing more to claim. The law says you should die, and and God says, yeah, you should die, but Christ already died in your place. And so we're free from the condemnation of the law. But the law still serves as a guide to us 
and teaches us what pleases and displeases God, who is now our Father in Christ. And so as the 1689 Confession states, man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages the one and deters the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. That's not what that passage in Romans means. It doesn't mean now that we're in Christ Jesus, anything goes. Right? There are no moral requirements upon us. The law still serves for us as a rule of life. We're free from its condemnation. And we see in this passage that God enjoins obedience upon these children because the commandment, honor your father and mother, applies to them. And so we see, again, those, those harmonious motivations for children as well as harmonious motivations for parents. So, in summary, children and parents have obligations to one another. Certainly, that's obvious from this passage. But we have also obligations to one another with reference to God. Both God who commands us to do these things that we ought to obey simply because God has commanded these things. But we also ought to obey out of love for God. Because of what God has done in becoming our Father in Christ Jesus we should let that gospel motivate us in the way that we parent our children, that we would tell a true story, paint a true picture of who God is as our Father, as we father our children. And that children shouldn't think of their relationship to their parents apart from thinking of the relationship between the Christian and His Heavenly Father. And so what we see is that we have several motivations, some of which are with reference only to one another and the the practical outcomes and so on and so forth, but some of which are with reference to God and the Gospel. And so we do want to take these imperatives uh, very seriously. We want to have healthy families where parents do a good job being parents, where kids do a good job being kids, but we've got to keep everything at the same time in that gospel framework that our parenting and our obedience as children to our parents are not the ground of our justification but actually flow from the prior action of God uh, moving towards us in the gospel.